It's a delight this morning to look out and see a number of visitors with us, and uh, also a great delight, too, to see a lot of our college students back in town having completed exams. We're glad to have you back for this bit of a break and to catch those two groups up. Uh, through this Advent season, we've been looking at this Advent calendar and using the words of Advent as kind of our focus for our sermons. So at the beginning, we looked at the word of hope. And how in the coming of Christ, that means when we look to the future of our lives and to the, the existence of humanity, there is something that we can look forward to with hope. We talked about peace. That in a world of chaos, because of the coming of Christ, we can have and know his peace. Last week we looked at joy. And while there's difficulty in encouraging you to feel joy, the joy we have and the divide between what we have earned from God and what we've received by his hand encourages us with that happiness. Well, today we continue that and we will do so by looking at that word love and we will do so once again using both an Old Testament and New Testament text. We start with our Old Testament text, which is from Isaiah chapter 43. I'll be reading the first seven verses. You can follow along on the screen or otherwise look it up in your pew Bibles. If you're looking it up in your pew Bibles, it's on page number 717. The prophet Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote these words to the Israelite nation. But now, thus says the Lord... He who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And then for our New Testament text, we turn forward to page number 1055. We'll be reading from John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. Again, John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, 
but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people who loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That word... Love. What a precious word. What a joyful, wonderful thing to love and to be loved. It's what so many of us live for. And again, though, as I mentioned last week when we talked about joy, there was that difficulty, that impossibility of trying to encourage you from a pulpit to get you to experience that emotional sensation of joy I ran against the, the same issue once again with that idea of love. How do I get you, all of you, to know that you are loved? And I ask that, especially in the context of, of knowing that for many of us, we don't always feel all that lovable. And so, that's where I want to start. If we were to ask, well, what would make you lovable? What makes you worthy of the love of anybody, let alone of God? What would you point to that says, no, I have value. I'm worthy of your love. Well, if you ask that question of the world, you know, what does it mean that you have value that makes you lovable? There are some that might point to the things that they have. I have value because of, of all of the, the money that I have in the bank, the acres of, of land that I own, the car that I drive, the things that I possess prove that I have value, something to contribute to this society. Others who have fewer things might say, well, uh, they would point to what they know. I've got information. I, I got great grades in school or still get good grades. And, and I know things about this world. You can come to me for information that I can share with you. And therefore, because I know certain things, I have value. Or others might point to skills that they have and what they do. I live a moral life. I'm a good person. I share and try to help others. I, I can do things for other people and have in the past. And, and therefore, I have value, something to offer and to contribute. And as much as those things are part of our world that we point to for value, is that really what would make us lovable or have worth in the eyes of others? Is that a true measure of your worth? And if not... Where else should we look? But maybe I should have backed up and started with another question of it. Well, why would we even question our value? Why would we wonder 
if we're good enough or lovable enough? And some of the answer to that is what we just talked about. Because when we try to find our value in the things that I just mentioned, our possessions, our knowledge, or our skills, and then we look at the world around us and we compare ourselves to others, no matter how much we have, no matter how much we know, no matter how good we are at certain areas of life, we all can find somebody who has more, knows more, or does more than we do. And so in comparison to those people, are we really lovable. The other issue for many Christians is when we start to actually compare ourselves to scriptures and we ask that question and we, we see the indictment against us from the Bible. Our passage from John 3 verses 19 and 20 suggests some of that indictment. It says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And if we're all honest with ourselves and with God, we know that at different times of our lives, that there is a pretty accurate description of who we are. In this Advent season that is a season of light, we talk and have talked about how this light speaks into the darkness of our lives and that darkness being those struggles, those challenges that we face. And yet if we're honest, like the text says, there are times when we have loved that darkness. When our great battles in our lives are battles within ourselves where we feel drawn toward, tempted to do the wrong things, and over and over again we admit that we have loved that darkness and participated in it. We've given in to those temptations. Not only does the text say that we love darkness, but that we hate the light. And again, that also can be true. We rebel against God's decrees, and the reality is that when we look at the world around us and we think about the darkness that others have experienced, we've contributed to that. When people think about those that have mocked them or belittled them, made them feel less than they are, our face, our words are what they see. And so the reality is that when we're honest with ourselves, we know that at the core, we aren't always all that lovable. And because of our sins, we've contributed to the darkness. It is those sins, that darkness that is spoken of in our Old Testament passage from Isaiah Leading up to this passage in Isaiah, with a lot of the other prophets, there are a lot of words of judgment against the nation. There is talk about the wrath of God that is growing in their growing sin and rebellion. There is a lot about how God has now handed over the Israelites to their enemies to be plundered and to be burned up. And they had experienced that. But... 
In the text that we read at the start of chapter 43, there is an abrupt and a drastic shift in language and in tone. No longer is God, through Isaiah, talking about destruction, plundering, and burning of judgment and penalties. Instead, the statement of the Lord that start our text is, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. There's the promise that though they will see water and flames... They will pass through those things. That yes, there is a river and water that will bring some destruction and be hard. That there will be fires that will consume much. But on the other side of that river, of those waters, on the other side of those flames, there still is a journey that will continue. And what they experience in the waters and the flames will not consume them entirely. Other nations might struggle, but there will be blessings given to Israel. And while the people had scattered throughout the land after the defeat of their enemies, the promise of God is that he was going to call them back to restore them from every corner of the globe and every point on the compass. They would be called back to the nation to resettle, to reclaim, and to see the glory of God. Given their great rebellion and disobedience, these words are great words of hope. But here's the question behind the passage that I wanted to explore this morning. Why? Why is there such a dramatic change from the words of judgment from Isaiah into these words of hope? Why would the account shift from the, what they are to expect in terms of wrath and anger of God turning now toward restoration and promises for the future? And in looking to the answer to that question, let's explore what we might expect to see, but don't in this text. First of all, if we look to find, there, there's no mention of any change in the behavior, character, or attitude of the people of Israel. You see, if God was going to move from, from judgment to restoration, we would expect or assume that, well, well, something must have changed in the Israelites. And we would expect those that remain to gather together and have great weeping and, and offer many sacrifices for their sins, to repent of what they had done, to, to grieve, to fast, and to, to be sorry for their sins. But it's not in our text. There's no repentance. There's no words of confession or change in their attitude. There's not even mention of them recognizing of all of what was going on as part of the judgment of God. In fact, the verses leading up to this at the end of chapter 42 seem to reveal that they were still very ignorant of why things were happening the way that they were. And so you can't say that the change in tone and the move from judgment to restoration was prompted by the actions of the Israelites. They did nothing to earn this renewal from the Lord. Another thing that's missing is sort of a sense of obligation from God. 
And to explain what I mean, mean by that, I, I thought of the analogy of, of our cars, right? So you're busy as a family, you're running your errands, you're going from place to place, trying to do the, the things that have to get done in your life, and all of a sudden you jump in your car, and instead of the engine turning over, it starts to just make awful noises. But you need it. And now that your car's broken down, whether you feel like you've got time or not, whether you've got the money or not, you've got to fix this out of an obligation to the vehicle that is yours. You've got to get this made right somehow. Either repair the car or sell the car and buy a new one. But you need a car. And so you've got to fix it. And in some ways, people look at that as the nation of Israel. Is that how God's attitude is toward them? All right, Israel, you messed up. I don't like it. I'm angry. I'm disappointed, but I've got to fix it. And that's the attitude of God, that he is obligated, that he is bound by, by something externally where he has to fix it because he needs these people. But again, that isn't here either. So if those things are missing... What is present? Instead, there is one clear answer in our text as to why there's a change in the tone and the message of the text. And it's found in verse 4, where God says he will protect and restore the nation, quoting, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Just stop for a moment and think about what those words meant for the people in Isaiah's time. Again, for a whole lot of the book, Isaiah had been talking about how they were lining up for the judgment of God and how what they were experiencing, losing their nation and having their land destroyed and losing their king and their security in their city was all because of their rebellion against God. They had clearly failed to be the people that God had called them to be. But these were still his people. And he still loved them. He describes them like a loving father describing their children. Remembering how he raised them, taught them, and the deep affection that he has for them. So yes, he had disciplined them. And part of that discipline was motivated because he loved them and in his love... But because of his ongoing love, there would be an end to that discipline and restoration would come. That was not only the message of the Israelites in the Old Testament, but that message just gets expanded and amplified in the New Testament. When we get to John chapter 3, Jesus at the beginning of the Gospel of John is having a conversation with this Pharisee named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus had been watching and listening to the things that Jesus was doing and saying, and he wanted to find out from Jesus, who are you? What is the heart of the message that you're proclaiming? And, and what do I need to do to understand it and to receive it? And in the explanation of that to him, John records these most famous of words about who Jesus is and why he came. They too are words of promise, 
Words that although through our sin and love of the darkness, we have earned and deserved to perish and to be condemned forever, that instead God would provide a final answer to all of our sins and promising that whoever believes in his son should not perish but have eternal life. And again, that's not because the people had earned it or deserved it. God didn't wait to send Jesus into a world that was good enough and ready to receive him as the gift from heaven that he was, to recognize him and embrace him as the Lord that he was. In fact, just a bit earlier in the Gospel of John, John said that though he came to his own, his own people did not receive him. If God was going to wait till the world was ready, then Jesus would never come. And again, he didn't just come out of a frustrated disappointment to to fix what we broke. Now, that's not to say or suggest that there was another way that the broken relationship with God could have been fixed. We would not find any hope if it was not provided for us in the work of Christ. This was the only way to restore our relationship with the Lord. But the point is not the necessity. The point was the motivation. It's the idea that as one commentary put it, the creator of the universe is not just your redeemer, but he is your lover. And that, according to the text, is the motivation for God's action. For God so loved the world. And that wasn't just an emotional feeling of affection for you. When, when talking about the topic of love in general, this is always an important point to make. Because when we think of love, we think of that, that emotional experience, the butterflies in your stomach when you're around just that right person and, and the emotions that you have. And yet, as much as we sing songs about that and watch movies about that kind of love, as much as we want that from our lives to experience that, the reality is that true love isn't about those emotional experiences True love is more about action than it is emotion. It's about, in love, sacrificing, surrendering and serving, making choices that sometimes are hard for you to make, but for the point of elevating and lifting up and encouraging somebody else. And that was what was needed to be seen about this text and what is described very well, that God so loved the world that he acted in the way of giving his only son. And that's what we celebrate in Christmas. The idea that the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, left the glories of heaven where he was perpetually honored by angels and he came to this earth and was born in a stable and placed in a dirty manger to impoverished poor cold people and the life that he lived was a life of suffering a life where he knew pain and hurt and sorrow A life where he was bombarded with temptations, although he never once gave in to any one of them. 
A life where though he was God incarnate, he was constantly criticized, challenged, doubted, and questioned over and over again. And what we celebrate on Christmas is really only a prelude to what is culminated in Good Friday. Knowing that the giving of his son was just not the, the circumstances into which he was born in Bethlehem, but it was the start of a journey that would lead him to a cross on Golgotha, where he would offer himself as a sacrifice, give himself so that your sins could be paid for. And he would endure that scorn and that harsh death. Again, why? Not because you earned it. Not because you were worthy. But because God so loved the world. Because God so loved you. And that's not overstating it. Because that message points us right back to where we began this service this morning at this baptismal font. This being the sign and seal, this gift from God given to us to remind each and every one of us as individuals to know that God's love is just not vague and general poured out to everyone, but God's love is something that is specific and particular to you. That God knows you by name. That God has called you by name and he has made particular and specific promises that you are his child and that all who have come to this baptismal font can know that you belong to him. What a gift to celebrate indeed. And behind those words again is that deep truth that will take a lifetime to explore. Again, I kind of want to go back to that, that question that we sometimes ask. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to, to claim that as part of your identity? I think sometimes we fall into the trap of saying, well, what it means to be a Christian is primarily about what we know. It's about thinking these certain right kinds of thoughts, knowing them, and then being able to say, I believe and agree to those thoughts. And so primarily what we are to be doing as Christians is learning, to filling our head with those thoughts so that we can properly defend them, know them, and live in light of them. And that's not untrue, but that isn't the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Sometimes I think we've, we assume that, that being a Christian is mostly about what we do. About the idea that there are certain behaviors and practices that we should engage in at certain times. And, and there are certain things that we should never ever do. And, and when we do those right practices, when we don't do the wrong things, then we are being Christians. And again, there's something about our attitudes and our actions that should reflect our identity as Christians. But that's not the heart of it. At the heart of what it means to be a Christian, it's about a relationship with God. It's about knowing and accepting the truth 
that despite who you are and the way that we have loved darkness and rebelled against our God, the great message of his gospel is, I know you and I love you and I gave my son in order to show you. And when we get that, that's when we want to know as much as we can about the God that stands behind those promises. And that's why we want to come here and to worship and to serve and to do all of the things that bring him glory and honor. And as we live into that love of God from a moment to moment basis, it does naturally change everything of who we are and how we live. And so people of God, that's what we celebrate, not just today, not just on Christmas and the giving of his son as we remember that event of his birth, but that's what we celebrate each and every Sunday when we gather in this place. The great message of grace that despite our sin, our God is a God that loves you. And when we know that love, should encourage us to just live for him in all that we are and all that we do and so that's my hope for this morning that as we again reflect together on the deep love of God for you that in knowing that it will inspire your worship and your praise not just in this place on Sundays but in everything that we do walking with the God that loves you. Toward that end, let's have a word of prayer. Oh Lord, we sit before you as those that know that we don't deserve your love. That our relationship with you should be more defined as a, as a judge to a, a criminal, to a debtor, to someone who has given much. But despite who we are, you and your grace, your love, and your covenant faithfulness continue to say that you love us. Lord, we celebrate that today. And my great prayer is that each and every person here would come to know that love. That in all that we do through this season, we would be reminded that that because you loved the world, that you loved us so much, you gave your son everything that you were and are. Lord, in, in recognizing that, I pray that it would inspire and change the way that we live our lives, that we would live in a constant awareness of your presence, of your knowledge of us, and your love for us. And as we recognize that, that it would inspire us, of course, to love others, to share that love that we've experienced from you, to point others to the same hope, peace and joy and love that can be found by believing in your name. Thank you for your gift and for your love. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.